right, Acts chapter 24. But let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon our reading first. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we do ask that you would arise, O Lord, and that in all your might you would make your truth known, certainly throughout the world, O Lord, and especially right now, right here, as we listen to your word, as your people gather to hear. Lord, may our hearts be open. May you heal us, Lord, as we are reminded of your mercy, which comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 24, we'll begin at verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is respect, it is, sorry, with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, 
the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. What is the human conscience? A dainty, delicate creature, a rare piece of workmanship of the maker, says Samuel Rutherford. It's sort of like this little judge inside your head that warns you when you start to do something wrong or are about to make a big mistake. Uh, John MacArthur tells the story of a plane with a warning system, like a conscience, that told the pilot, pull up, pull up, but the pilot, thinking it wasn't working, turned it off, and the plane crashed into a mountain. The human conscience is not infallible. It can be made more accurate by a knowledge of God's word and a closeness in relationship with the Lord. It can be made dull and inaccurate by listening to the values of the world or by continual sin. It can be suppressed, hardened, and just about totally destroyed. It's a dainty, delicate creature. And in every one of us, there comes a time when it warns us that we are guilty. And at that point, we have to make a choice. Do we seek refuge in the blood of Christ to obtain a clear conscience? Or do we begin to ignore and crush our conscience? only to find eventually that our conscience has gone utterly missing. Well, our Bible text for today pictures for us these three different stages of a conscience, a, miss a missing conscience, a clear conscience, and a guilty conscience. And so let's start by looking at the missing conscience of the Jews. So my first point, a missing conscience uh, the Jewish high priest Ananias and a bunch of other Jewish leaders, they, they show up in Caesarea. They're there to try to prove that Paul is guilty. They want to get rid of this troublesome apostle. They bring along a lawyer, probably, we think. He has a, a uh, Latin name, Tertullus, so he's probably a Roman. Uh, perhaps they're, helping, they're hoping that someone who knows Roman law will be able to kind of give them an edge with Felix here. But, of course, behind Tertullus are the Jewish leaders. In verse 9, joining in his charge and affirming what uh, he says. So, 
The question is, are these things really so? Or are these guys bearing false witness, betraying consciences that are gone? We're going to have to fact-check Tertullus to figure this out. So we begin with his flattery. Flattering the judge at the beginning of your speech, uh, that's sort of a normal part of a trial, uh, unfortunately. Even uh, Paul actually begins his speech with a compliment for Felix down in verse 10. But this flattery is horrendous. One scholar actually calls it nauseating. Tertullus says that the Jews enjoy much peace through Felix, but nothing could be further from the truth. Felix was so brutal that his reign is widely recognized as one of the major reasons that the Jews actually rebel against Rome a few years from now in 66 AD. There were multiple uprisings and riots during his reign, and his methods for crushing them included mass crucifixions, and allowing his soldiers to loot and plunder Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, Ananias may have even been a bit nervous about showing up because Felix had actually had one of the previous high priests in Jerusalem murdered after he complained about Felix's behavior. In the right circles, this compliment Tertullus gives, it would be just some sort of twisted joke. Uh, In this case, it's nauseatingly false. And then there's the great reforms being made for the Jewish nation that are brought about because of Felix's great foresight. Uh, Of course, we don't know of any reforms that Felix accomplished. He is uniformly spoken of in the Bible, as well as the three different ancient historians who talk about him as corrupt and self-serving. His skills seem to have been obtaining money through illegal means, uh, seducing young women, which we'll see in a later point, and surviving in his post longer than most other governors of Judea. That's actually the one thing you'll notice down in verse 10 that Paul feels he can genuinely compliment Felix about. And it is true. Felix was in office double the average tenure of the 11 governors who came before him. Great reforms of great foresight, though, not so much. So how in good conscience can these Jewish leaders affirm these lies? They affirm what Tertullus says only by suppressing their conscience. Honesty is one of the first things we begin dismissing when we start to ignore our conscience. It's a bad sign. But what about these accusations they bring? Maybe maybe we just dismiss the flattery. It's just conventional. Well, Tertullus accuses Paul of three things. First, being a troublemaker, right? In verse 5, he calls Paul a plague uh, who causes riots everywhere he goes. Now, this is a serious accusation. The Romans were always nervous about anyone disruptive. I mean, they have a big empire they're trying to hold together. And it's also true, right? We've seen that riots do seem to follow Paul just about everywhere he goes, But what is not true is that Paul is stirring up these riots. In fact, you'll notice if you look back, Luke is very careful to record, in most cases, it's actually the Jews who stir up these riots. They are accusing Paul of something they themselves are responsible for. The blame shift. Another telltale sign of someone with a missing conscience. 
It's always someone else who is causing the problems. Destroying your conscience blinds your vision. You can't see the log sticking out of your own eye. Well, secondly, Paul is accused in verse 5 of being the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The word there, sect, it seems to have negative connotations here along the lines of saying Paul is a heretic. Uh, This could be a significant accusation as well because Judaism had sort of special protections under Roman law that a, a heretical movement might not receive. But of course, it's not true. Uh, Paul confesses in verse 14 that he is part of the way, which they're calling a sect, but he goes on to describe how the beliefs of the way are in accordance with true Judaism. We worship the same God. We believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. We have the same hope in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. This last part might even be a little bit of a dig at the high priest and his friends because likely most of them were Sadducees. And if you remember back, Sadducees didn't actually believe in the resurrection. But notice that in verse 15, Paul says, having a hope in God, which is about the resurrection, which these men themselves accept. Why does he say that? Because belief in resurrection was the majority belief in Judaism. So he's actually sort of hinting that this sect he's part of is more biblically faithful than these Jewish leaders standing in front of him. It's actually the Jews who have abandoned God's truth. They are the heretics. Well, thirdly, Tertullus accuses Paul of trying to profane the temple. And this is a very serious charge because the Romans allowed the Jews to handle these sorts of crimes on their own. And so if, if Felix upholds this accusation, he would have to hand Paul over to the Jewish leaders, which, of course, would be a death sentence. But, of course, again, this accusation is completely false. You may remember it was based on an assumption that was made by the Jews from Asia. Chapter 21, verse 29, who had seen Paul with a Gentile in the city and supposed that he had brought this guy into the inner courts of the temple. So we have group A assuming something and group B hearing it and making it a full-blown accusation. We see the dreadful danger of gossiping about something or believing something that has not been proved. But the Jews from Asia are nowhere to be seen, as Paul points out in his defense. Verse 18, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, dash, you notice there in the text, and the dash is because there's some missing words uh, in the Greek of Paul's sentence. You know, he kind of cuts off as if he's sort of like looking around. Oh, they're not here. And of course, this brings up the main problem with all of these accusations. They don't have any witnesses. The only thing they are witnesses of is Paul's statement that he brings up in verse 21 about his belief in the resurrection, something that they were entirely divided on. They, they did not convict him over it. We might call this the case 
of the missing witnesses by those with a missing conscience. They don't have witnesses for Paul causing a riot. They don't have witnesses for Paul profaning the temple. Maybe they can serve as witnesses that he's a ringleader of the way, but he confessed to that anyway. In fact, the only witness they actually refer to back in verse 8 is Paul himself. Their, their case is built on lies, assumptions, and missing witnesses. This is the very definition of bearing false witness about your neighbor is a public violation of the ninth commandment by the leaders of Judaism. It's shocking. It's sad. It seems so obviously shameful to us. But it is exactly where a conscience that has been destroyed and suppressed leads. The conscience is a dainty, delicate creature, says Samuel Rutherford. And he goes on, keep it whole without a crack, for if there be but one hole so that it break, it will with difficulty mend again. Well, let's turn now to our second point, a clear conscience. A clear conscience. What is a clear conscience? Paul says he has one in verse 16, and elsewhere the Bible talks about the importance of having a clear or a good conscience. It's not a missing conscience like the Jews. It's present. It functions. It's working. Uh, and even more, it is, it is tended to. It is cared for. It is valued. And one of the things we should see from the get-go with Paul here is that a clear conscience gives you the integrity to defend yourself. Christians should defend themselves against false accusations. I think sometimes Christians are confused by the fact that Christ was silent when he was falsely accused, or by what Christ said about turning the other cheek in Matthew 5.39. But Christ was silent because of his unique calling to be a sacrificial lamb. He, he could not defend himself because he was destined for slaughter. He did not speak because of his love for his people. But when Peter calls Christians to follow this example of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, he doesn't tell them to be silent. He tells them not to respond in kind to their accusers, which is also the point of Matthew 5, 39. When scorned, don't scorn back. When threatened, don't threaten back. And this is a danger when one is falsely accused, right? To respond with scorn, with anger, to react rather than to stop and think and then act. And this ability to defend yourself is part of the freedom of having a good conscience when false accusations are brought against you by the world or by the devil. A clear conscience protects you. A guilty conscience. A way down conscience silences you in shame or makes us lash out in anger so that we begin to destroy our conscience. But how do we get this clear conscience? 
Paul says in verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul's inner sense of right and wrong is clear. There are not things weighing on it, things unresolved, unconfessed, undiscussed. And there are two things we need to do to pursue a clear conscience. First and most importantly, we need to live a life of continual repentance. Paul is not perfect. That's not what it means to have a clear conscience. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the worst of sinners. He doesn't say that to make you feel better for how rotten you are. He says it because it is true. How does he have a clear conscience? He repents. He does it often, publicly if necessary. He does it with grief and hatred over his sin and a deep ache to turn and live differently and he perseveres in that repentance because the only thing that can clear away the dark stains of sin is returning to the fountain of Christ's blood and plunging yourself into it again and again. Hebrews 9.14 says it is the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience. This is one of the reasons we have a time of confession at the beginning of our services, to remind you to repent so that your conscience might be clear as you come into worship, as you gather to commune with your brethren. There is nothing so delightful as a conscience that has been weighed down and darkened by secret sin, finally being set free in a glorious moment of true repentance. Maybe you can recall a time as a child when a bunch of other kids ended up in a pile on top of you. And for this dreadful moment, you felt like you couldn't breathe anymore. You were crushed against the ground. You yell over the laughter. They don't know they're crushing you. You yell, get off, get off. And after what feels like forever, they pick themselves off and you can breathe again. Sweet oxygen rushes back into your lungs. That is the feeling of a conscience that has been freed from the weight of sin. Fellow sinners, it is worth the pain of repentance. The second thing that builds a clear conscience is seeking to be a good citizen. First and foremost, in God's kingdom, and then secondly, in the earthly kingdom you're part of. When Paul says he takes pains to have a good conscience, that refers to the work of repentance, which is painful, and the work also of holiness. And we begin with the foundation of God's laws. We taste them. We find they're sweet, like honey or manna. They're life-giving. And then as long as they don't uh, force us to disobey God, we follow the laws of our country. Paul is not a revolutionary. He's not causing riots in Jerusalem, which is why he is able to stand up before the Roman governor and defend himself with a clear conscience. Now, I want to be so clear about this. Many Christians, they major in the second thing, and they minor in the first thing. They spend a lot of time thinking about the do's, the don'ts of being a Christian, and little time repenting and then resting in Christ and all his benefits. That is an exhausting recipe. We must 
measure in our weakness and our absolute dependence on Christ if we are to have any hope of living as his people. But we should look finally at the last section of our text because we see here uh, a guilty conscience. So my third point, a guilty conscience. Felix has a dilemma He's stuck. He can't let Paul go. That would upset the Jews. And in verse 26, we also see he's kind of hoping for a bribe. But Paul is clearly not guilty. And you'll remember from last week that the tribune, Lysias, had, had totally backed Paul's innocence. So it could be kind of messy if Felix just went ahead and executed Paul anyway. But besides all of this, I'm sure you noticed Felix is interested, right? Luke tells us in verse 22 that Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He's been following their story. And that's part of the reason he decided to put things off. He wants to hear more. So in verse 24, he brings his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and they come and they hear Paul speak about faith. In Jesus Christ, which is the core of Christianity. To know that you need saving, to believe that Jesus can save you, and then to reach out and take hold of him. That is faith in Jesus Christ. But notice that Paul's discussion about faith in Jesus Christ, it involves three distinct points, right? He has kind of a, a point, some points of application he uses here. Verse 24, righteousness self-control, and the coming judgment. Paul is applying the gospel in a specific way to the lives of Felix and Drusilla. And I think you'll feel the force of these three points more if you know a bit about Felix and Drusilla. Felix, he grew up as a slave in the household of the Roman emperor Claudius. Uh, Felix and his brother Pallas were freed at a young age, and his brother became a great favorite of the emperors, which is how Felix then ended up getting his position as governor of the province of Judea. So Felix grew up in a world of immorality, pleasure, and power. Uh, in Judea, he worked his way through several wives before coming to uh, Drusilla, who was known as a great Jewish beauty in the land. She was the young wife of a foreign king who had gotten circumcised just so he could marry her. And the story goes that with the help of a Jewish magician from Cyprus, Felix seduced Drusilla away from her husband and convinced her to become his adulterous companion. And Paul knew this. Everyone knew this stuff. People are always loving to talk about the latest immoral scandal of their celebrities, their politicians. This would have been front page news in all the magazine stalls. Get your smutty magazines here. Don't miss the story of Felix and his Jewess, Drusilla. But how long will she last? Now, Paul is, he's essentially living on the edge of a cliff. At any time during these two years, Felix and decide to pass judgment on him and execute him. But Paul, he dives right in with the gospel, and he applies it to their lives. First, righteousness. What is righteousness? 
is a record of doing what is right. And you know what he said to Felix and Drusilla. The same thing your conscience has said to you, if it is still living. You have no righteousness. You have no record of doing what is right, not according to God's law. You don't. Second, self-control. And the room must have started feeling a bit uncomfortable when Paul launched into this topic. Drusilla is fidgeting, glancing at the door. Felix is pulling at his collar, probably glad that he sent the servants out of the room because things are getting decidedly pointed. And maybe Paul just quotes right from the book of 1 Thessalonians. He wrote it a few years earlier, chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And from there, Paul transitions to his final topic, the coming judgment. For the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And no one can shake his fist at the Lord, laugh at his rules, deny the image he has placed upon their bodies, and ignore their conscience forever because God will judge the world in righteousness by the risen King, Jesus Christ. And how, Felix and Drusilla, will you measure up if you have no righteousness and no self-control? Everybody knows it. How will you survive the coming of the Lord? He will come in the clouds to judge the wicked. And how will you survive without faith in Jesus Christ? And we read these wonderful words there in the middle of verse 25. Felix was alarmed. His conscience is working. If, if it was dead, he, he would laugh or have Paul executed on the spot. But he is alarmed. The word used here for alarmed means to be in a state of fear. It is only used once in the book of Revelation and five times by Luke. And every time Luke uses it, except here, it refers to people who have seen the risen Jesus or an angel of the Lord. This is a wonderful moment of spiritual clarity for Felix. His conscience is not dead, not missing. Even after all his wickedness, all his immorality, there's a moment here where he senses the danger he's in, and we see the gift of a guilty conscience. A dainty, delicate creature. Still a little bit alive in him. but it's a moment that passes Felix by. He tells Paul to go away. He thinks he will hear him again, and he does. But his conscience left with Paul. It never appears to come back. Do not tell your guilty conscience to go away. Don't do it. Don't think to yourself, there will be another time to take this stuff seriously. There will be another time to repent. There will be another time to call that person I haven't talked to in 20 years. There will be another time to consider whether God's judgment is really coming. You fool, Jesus said 
in his parable. This very night your life may be demanded from you. You think it belongs to you? Friends, when your life is finally demanded of you, and it will be, will you stand before the judge of all with no righteousness, no self-control, and no conscience? Or will you have a good conscience because of your faith in Jesus Christ? And if this faith is yours, then may the Lord lead you in daily repentance. May you rest in Christ this day and every day and glory in the beauty of his laws, walking in the freedom of a clear conscience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, we pray that you would not have us to be those with a missing conscience, but instead, oh, Lord, that we would, you would give us the gift of a guilty conscience, Lord, and that we would respond to it. We would not let it pass by, oh, Lord, but we would turn and cry out for help, for we know that you love to save those who truly cry out for help, who recognize their weakness, their need for a record of doing what is right that only Jesus Christ can provide. For purification from a guilty conscience, Lord, that will weigh us down, and only Jesus can purify it. So, Lord, we turn to him and we ask, as we rest in him, you would give us a clear conscience. And Father, as we rest in him, you would strengthen us by your grace to live in your law, to turn again and again in repentance without fear, Lord, knowing that you accept the contrite and broken heart. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.